All right, so this morning, um, we've been in a series called You Ask For It, and this weekend we're doing You Ask For It Live. You Ask For It Live. So during this series, I allowed you to pick the topics that I spoke about. And so based on the concentration of questions and topics, we selected these messages that we've been teaching or preaching or speaking on. And so that's been a lot of fun, very challenging, very different. Like we've had guests come, you know, in the last few weeks and they're like, I've loved this series. And it's not usually how it is exactly. (laughs) You know, and so we've talked about a lot of hot topics. But today uh, we're doing You Ask For It Live, which means I'm going to take live questions. The whole service have done this in the other services. And so um, first question is, how do, you, how do you hear his voice more clearly? And I'm going to assume by his, you mean God's. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm sorry, bad joke. <clears throat> how do you hear his voice more clearly? Um, I, you know, for me, um, I think there's a few things. I think there's a few things. I think first of all, you know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, I think that God speaks through his word, but God speaks and he can speak through his word. And his word is definitely what he has spoken uh, and is speaking. But I think the word of God, what that says is that the word of God helps me to learn to hear his voice. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes why? By the word of God. The more I'm around the word of God, in the word of God, I'm going to understand more his voice, how he speaks uh, the tones and all those things. Now, I think there's a, there's a trick that I use. I hate to call it trick because it's in the Bible. Um, David, um, the psalmist, and I can't remember exactly the, the text where it's at. I think somewhere in the book of Chronicles or first, first or second Chronicles, I think. I don't think it's in Samuel. I think it's in Chronicles. But um, he actually says, Lord, these things were too wonderful for me, but you made me understand them by the writing of my own hand. You made me understand these things that, that were too much for me to understand, but you made me understand them by the writing of my own hand. And so I think prayer journaling is a great way to, to hear the voice of God. And here's what I mean by this, and this is what I do. I do this. I have a, a Evernote. I have a prayer journal on my iPad. I journal a lot um, as God is speaking to me. But, but what I do actually is I will, as I'm praying, I'll start typing just the burden of my heart in a prayer, like a letter. I think it's better if you handwrite it. So I'm not, uh, even though I do both, I really like to handwrite, but I'll start writing. I do it on Evernote because it's easier to keep up with, but I start writing my prayer out to the Lord. And what I found is if you just kind of listen and kind of, kind of give him an opportunity, you'd be amazed at what you write back to yourself how you kind of pick up his tone, his voice. And I can't tell you how many times just sitting there and listening. And so I think there's a few things. It's, you know, it's like, um, you know, first of all, it's frequency. I'm not going to learn to hear his voice if I only try to hear his voice in critical times. Um, because when you add in emotion, it's always harder to hear the voice of God. Does that make sense? When, when I'm under stress emotionally, it's really going to be hard. to when, when something's critical, it's really hard to hear God. I need to learn to hear God say, hey, go tell that person over there they have a beautiful smile. I need to learn to hear God to say, hey, go tell that person and give them this encouraging word or scripture. And so we used to do hearing God labs, and maybe we need to do that again, but I would, I'd take a group of people and walk them through just some basis. Here's some things. God communicates on, heaven communicates on a frequency of rest. 
And that's why when you have emotional anxiety and those type of things, it makes it harder to hear. Heaven is, God's voice is on, it's on, it's on a frequency of rest. And so I have to kind of calm and quiet my soul, as the psalmist said. And then what I can do is pray and listen, be in the word, spend time with God. The more I spend time with him, the more sensitive I am to his voice. And then I can start writing my prayer, my burden, my heart, and, and just keep writing and, and might be amazed at what God would say back to you. So I think those are some practical ideas. Here's the next question. How many concealed carry license members are encouraged to carry at this church? <laughs> um, none. We don't encourage anyone to carry, but we respect the, the constitutional right to carry. I have a CHL. Now it's a license to carry because we have open carry in Texas. Uh, please don't open carry. We'll probably get a sign that says no open carry um, because that's harder to police, but you can conceal and carry if you have a license. We don't endorse it because I don't want to be responsible for who you shoot. And so... <laughs> And I mean, it's in the nicest way, right? I mean, it would probably shock you how many guns are in this room right now. Please don't take them out and show us. Um, <laughs> we do have officers that are here for security. Um, but if people want to carry, we don't encourage them to carry because we don't want to be liable for what they do. Uh, and more than likely, if like one of our members shot someone, we, we would be sued civilly um, and the church would. And, and so, and, but we want to be able to say, hey, we didn't tell them to carry. It's just, it's a right in the state of Texas to carry and they carried. And, um, you know, so, so if you have a, a, a license to carry and you want to carry, please carry. It's fine with us. Just carry concealed and, uh, <laughs> And if there's a bad guy, try to shoot him. All right, so, <laughs> so no, I, I don't mean to make light of that, especially with everything that's gone on. And, and we did, we've added more officers and that type of thing to make sure that people are safe. Um, but that's why we say conceal, because if someone has an unconcealed, in fact, we've talked about putting the sign, the, the .30-07 sign, which is no open carry, uh, because if someone's open carrying, then that, that would immediately let us know that that person probably needs to be talked to. And so, but we've, you know, we've also moved to no backpacks and bags. I don't know if you've tried that, but if you try to bring a backpack in, they'll probably tell you to put it back in the car. Um, or a big briefcase or something like that. So there's some things that we do and watch for. And we don't tell you about it. We just want you to be able to, I think you should be able to come to church and enjoy it. And so we don't tell you all that stuff, but we're watching all the time. So anyways, um, <laughs> my favorite concealed carry was a little lady in our church. I won't tell you, well, I won't tell you who it is, but, but she was probably at least in her 70s. And she came up to me one time. She said, now, Pastor, I don't know if I should let you know, but I pack heat all the time I come to church. <laughs> and... And I'm thinking she probably had like a 45 revolver in that big purse of hers, and that would be awesome to watch. Anyways, um, how do I minister to an atheist coworker when he tries to shut us down every time? Um, I, you know, that's a. Here's the thing: if they're shutting you down, then you're being too strong. Um, you know, you can't force feed the gospel, and and so maybe uh, in, instead of telling them the truth, ask them questions. Right? So why are you an atheist? And hear their story. Right? Like, sit down and listen. And, and here's one. Listen and don't respond. Don't, don't give them a scripture because they don't believe in the Bible. They're an atheist. I personally think it's impossible to be an atheist because an atheist has to say there is no God and there's no way any person can prove there is no God. Right? And so, so I think it's impossible to be an atheist, but I know people say that they are. And I'll, you know, and if I was being a smart aleck and I don't recommend this, I would say, okay, well, prove to me there's no God. And they would say, prove to me there is. And I'd say, I'd be glad to introduce you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, 
to say there is no Tom on the face of the earth, I'd have to know every person in the world to be able to prove there was no Tom, right? Or I could just know Tom and I wouldn't have to know everybody and say, I don't know about everybody, but I know there is a Tom. And so to me, it's, it takes more faith to be an atheist. But the question is, how do I minister to an atheist? Here's my thing. Be a friend. Like here's one, don't preach to them because it's not working. Because here's what, here's what it sounds like to me is like, here's this atheist in the workplace, right? And we're getting around trying to help them come to Christ and they just shut down, right? So probably you're pushing them farther away from faith at that point. So maybe sit down and say, talk to me about your beliefs. Tell me why you, th- tell me, tell me why you've chosen atheism. You know, tell me what that's based off of. Ask questions like, how can you be sure there's not a God? And don't do it sarcastically or religiously. Just say, hey, you know, to be an atheist, you've come to this conclusion, there is no God. And they say, well, I don't know for sure there's not a God. Now it's like, well, now you're an agnostic. So you're not an atheist. And I think you can be an agnostic to say, I don't know if there's God or not. I don't know. I think that's fair. Being an atheist to me is impossible. It takes a lot more faith, <clears throat> right? Because with all the scientists in the world and we can't, we can't regenerate crea- creation or the Big Bang or the amoebas turning into people or whatever it is we need, you know, and all the, the records on the fossils are falsified and they don't really tell the story. I mean, there's so much, like it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist. So I know you understand that, but here's what I'm saying. You're talking, it's a person, not an atheist. So make them a person and stop making them an atheist and then listen to their story, right? Does that make sense? And don't try to change them. Just listen to their story. Be a friend to them. Love on them. Encourage them, right? Win them over without a word. So that's my thoughts on that. Um, what are your thoughts on gun control? Um, I think we should control the bad guys who have guns and make sure the good guys have them. Um, I mean, in short, I don't get into this a lot, but um, I think there should be adequate gun control so we're making sure that the guns don't get to the wrong people. But I don't think taking guns away from law-abiding citizens in any way makes anything safer, right? So because the last time I, this is the argument that I will always have. The last time I looked, criminals, they're not really good about obeying laws. That's why they're criminals, right? So if you say no one can have a gun, all the law-abiding people will be like, okay. And all the criminals will be like, so what? I ain't obeyed a law yet, right? So... Yeah, if, if, if someone breaks in my house, I want them to be pondering which weapon's going to kill them, <laughs> right? And how many times they can be shot before I call the police. And so that's kind of, that sounds pretty harsh, but don't send me any hate mail. I'm just saying that's my thoughts. I think that, I think that we should really do everything we can to make sure guns don't get into the hands of, of people who are not mentally stable or people who are criminals or felons and those type of things. I think, I think definitely we should do that. But taking, you know, making gun control stringent upon people who obey the law is kind of the... I mean, when you look, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, <clears throat> you know, the church shooting is a horrendous thing. But the shooter was actually... Uh, wounded by not the police officer, it's wounded by someone there. You know, the Colorado shooting with Brady Boyd, it was a police officer that, that took down the shooter, but she wasn't on duty. She just happened to be carrying her nine millimeter in her purse. Uh, and if she hadn't been there, God knows what would have happened, right? And so I think disarming law-abiding citizens doesn't really solve the problem at all. And I think people are foolish if they think it does. So, and you know, guns are nothing to be scared of. I, I mean, I've got a lot of guns, and so far the only thing they've killed is some animals. 
you know? I mean, and that was intentional, by the way. <laughs> All right, I'm going to move on for that one. Uh, I'm a straight woman, and I don't consider being gay a sin. Is there a place for me? Absolutely, there's a place for you. Absolutely. Um, as, as a church, I, I feel like it is our obligation to offer the same thing Jesus did, which is unconditional acceptance. That's our responsibility as a church. And so you're accepted in this church, whether you believe there is a God, whether you believe in God, whether you live this way or whether you live that way, you're, you, are, you are absolutely accepted in this church. Now, there's a difference between being accepted and what we feel like the Bible says is acceptable. And so what I'm going to ask is grace from you. I feel like the Bible teaches a certain way and says certain things are acceptable and others aren't. But that's not a condemning issue, and that's not against a person. And so if you can have grace for me and understand that there's a way that I believe and it's based on the way that I read the Bible, then I'll have grace for you to say, hey, I understand you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do his work, and I'm not the Holy Spirit, I'm the pastor. And so there's absolutely a place for you in this church. So, see if that answers that one. All right. Boy, it got quiet, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, someone said, I cannot believe you're going to stand up there and take live questions and answer them. And to me, I'm like, you know, if you can't have grace for me, I mean, I didn't prepare for any of these questions. I didn't know what the questions were going to be. And so if you get offended, then you probably need to pray through. Um, <clears throat> what age should one start tithing? I started when I was nine. Um, there's not a biblical age that says you should start tithing. Uh, we teach our kids giving, uh, giving, spending, and saving uh, is the way we teach our kids. But um, what age should you start tithing? I think if you, when, whenever you understand it, I guess. Um, you know, as you know, as a parent, don't make your kid tithe. If you got a you know fifteen year old and they just got their first job, or a sixteen year old and they just got their first job, don't make them tithe. Teach them about biblical finance. Let them choose, right? And so, um, you know, as far as what age should you start tithing, there's not really an age. Um, I hope that answers that question. Um, by the way, some people, what is tithing? Is where you give the first ten percent of your increase. Why do you do that? Because I think that's what the Bible asks us to do. Um, Hebrews 7, uh, Jesus said we should tithe. So that's, that's what that is. Um, we're not legalistic about it. I think it's something you and Jesus work out, and I don't look at who tithes and who doesn't tithe, but uh, I personally tithe and uh, have since I was nine. So um, it's just my conviction. I believe our tithe declares that he is Lord, and I think if you're declaring that he is Lord, you want to declare that with all of your life, including your finances. And I don't know why... We can say, I'm, I've given my life to God, and then it's like, but I can't trust him with 10% of my income. You know, to me, it's like, okay, well, that's where faith and growth and maturity comes in, where we can trust God with everything that we have. And I think the maturest place you can be is, as a believer is not even tithing. I, I think we start in this world with, it's kind of like, this is my stuff, and then we kind of get saved. It's like, God, do you want me to give you anything out of my stuff? And I think we grow in maturity till we get to this place that's like, okay, God, how much do you want me to give out of what you've given me? And then I think there's one more step. God, how much do you want me to keep out of what you've given me? I think that's the maturest place you can be as far as giving. And I think that's growing in our faith with God. So, um, How can I overcome these depressed feelings I always feel during the holidays? Um, <clears throat> probably... And you're probably going to need some help on that, if nothing else, the Holy Spirit. But um, if you're feeling depressed in the holidays, the first question I would ask is, okay, what's the trigger? 
So it could be that you lost someone or you're missing someone. It could be something. But there's something. Uh, the, um, what we know now in, uh, from science is that trauma, our emotional trauma, our emotional wounds are carried in our cells. And so when we experience a trauma like a loss or something else, it's stored as memory in our cells. And so that's why kind of psychosomatically we can experience things because we kind of get triggered and it kind of gets brought up again. And so my first thing would be, hey, let's instead of saying you shouldn't be depressed, um, let's figure out what's, where the brokenness is, where the pain is, where the hurt is, and let's let the grace of Jesus, let's try to get the grace of Jesus there. And the best thing to do that is not do it alone. So I would talk to my life group leader. A life group might go see a counselor, talk to a pastor. But I would talk to someone and say, hey, I'm, I battle with depression every time this time of year. You know, I, I had a season this last year, I had a really big breakthrough personally, where I, I noticed there was a particular time of the year where I felt depressed. And, and, uh, and this last year, I really felt like God, through helping, I have a, I, there's a counselor that I talk to, I have a life coach. I, it takes a lot of help because I'm screwed up. And, um, and so I guarantee I'm more screwed up than you. And so, um, but I have kind of a life team. And so with processing that life team and all this, I really came to some conclusions and God was really able to do a work. Um, and man, it was just, it was awesome, but I couldn't have probably gotten there alone. I needed some godly counsel. I needed the Holy spirit and, and I needed to, to look inside instead of outside. And, and for me, it was really easy for me to say, well, I shouldn't feel depressed, but I did, <laughs> you know, it's like, so the first thing I need is like, I feel depressed and, and I'd like to say I shouldn't, or I'd like to just get over it, but you don't really just get over stuff anyway. Uh, the way out is usually the way in. And so that would be my, my recommendation. How can you chase after your calling while helping your spouse chase after theirs, even though they may be completely different? I mean, I think that's a good one. Um, I think, first of all, don't help your spouse chase their calling. Just support them in it, right? So there's a difference between support and and helping them chase. So I think I'd reword that to say you support each other. Um, It's kind of interesting, you know, with the church, Julie and I have started the church, but there's things Julie's called to do that I'm not called to do. She has a grace and anointing on her life for things that that aren't for me. And then there's probably things that I'm called to do that she's not called to do. And we've had some of these discussions lately. And what I'm trying to, I try to help support her the best I know how, which is not always great because I'm a man and I'm not always attuned to certain things. But um, I try to help her in the things that she's called to do. And she tries to help me in the things that I'm called to do. And But it's a support situation. Um, you know, and she's helped the church tremendously, even though maybe that wasn't her biggest call in life, but she's kind of been all things when we needed her. And, and, uh, and now she's pursuing some things even outside the church as far as ministry and things. And I'm trying to learn to support her in those things because those have been the calling of God on her life for such a long time. So I think there's a way that, that you support one another and be cheerleaders and champions and help process and pray and that type of thing. But don't take responsibility for your spouse's calling. Uh, and don't let them take responsibility for yours. Does that make sense? And so, so make sure you have good boundaries on who's responsible for which calling and who's responsible to support and encourage uh, and that type of thing. Uh, where's the best place to start reading the Bible? Leviticus chapter one. It's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, book of the Bible, I, I think it's always great. Like the book of John, it, because it so talks about the deity of who Jesus is. 
Um, and it's a gospel. And so that's a great place. You know, you can read a Psalm and a proverb a day. There are 31 proverbs. And so you can read a proverb a day. You can work through Psalms. I tell you the tools we have now is the version Bible app has a lot of different plans on there and you can get that app and start a plan. It will remind you every day to read. It will even hit a button. It will read it to you. And so, um, so you might look at a devotion. They have all types of devotions based on topics and ideas. And some of them are three days and some of them are 30 days and some of them are 14 days. Like I'm doing an Advent devotion right now uh, that I'm enjoying just myself, my own quiet time. Just wanted to do that. And it's a, I can't remember. I think it's a 25 day. I think it goes all the way up to Christmas and started December the 1st. And, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I do that kind of stuff too, as well as my normal Bible reading. And, uh, I like to try to read through the Bible chronologically most of the time. And so it's cause it makes sense to me. You know, the books of the Bible aren't exactly chronological. Y'all do know that, right? So, <laughs> so I like to read through it chronologically and, um, so anyway, so I think that's, you know, it's a good place. Or, or you read the book of John, you know, here's my thing. I think <clears throat> when it comes to reading the Bible, make sure the focus doesn't become reading the Bible. Make sure the focus comes, um, in getting out of the Bible, right? So pulling out the truth, meditating on the truth, understanding what's being said. So you could read, you know, it's, it's kind of like the application is what makes the difference. You could read one verse and apply it, and that's going to be a lot better than reading four chapters and not remembering what you read. Does that make sense? So, um, my friend is not an atheist, but he is not a Christian. So that would say maybe an agnostic. He goes to switch, but says it's just to hang out with the people there. How do I get him to come to church and get saved? Um, well, there again, we can't take responsible responsibility. Switch, by the way, is student ministry. So I'm going to guess this is a teenager. That's a great question. First of all, if you're a teenager and you're this concerned about your friend, I think that's amazing. Um, and having such a good heart as a teenager, I think I would commend that first and foremost. Um, loves hanging out with the people. I think that's the big thing is, is make sure he keeps hanging out with Christian people and around switch. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything to, to push them away or make them feel outside of the group. You know, when we started Pathway, we wanted a place where if you were an atheist or agnostic, you'd come hang out and feel like you belonged. Okay, well, there you go. That's what Jesus, yeah, that's what Julie said that, and that's what Jesus did. Like, to hell with religion. And so, because um, that's about where it's good to get you. Um, and so, I love, I love days like this. Anyways, um, yeah, believe it or not, we wanted a church where you didn't have to believe like us to belong here which was the way Jesus lived. And so for us in all of our environments, kids, switch, et cetera, we want to make sure that people feel like they can fit and belong whether they believe like us, right? Because that's really, I think, the whole idea of salvation by grace is the fact that none of us deserve anything, right? And we're just trying to figure out this thing and how it works. And so we want environments where people, it's non-religious, Right? Because all religion is good is ostracizing people and creating divides and divisions and pain and, and all that kind of stuff. And so Jesus was very non-religious. The only people that he ever got ticked off at was religious people. Y'all understand that, right? And he wouldn't even hang out with the religious people. He'd go hang out with the sinners and the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes and all that kind of stuff, right? If Jesus pastored a church today, and I think I said this during this series, it would smell like marijuana, Jim Beam, and anointing oil on a Sunday morning. That's how it would smell, Right? 
And so, um, so, so I would say in this particular situation, just continue being light to them and love to them. You know, let, give them a place to talk, give them a place to hang out. Don't try to push anything on them as far as beliefs or that type of thing. Pray for them and trust the Holy Spirit to work because if they're in environments where the Holy Spirit's working, I think seeds are being sown and, and you need to understand, you, don't, you know, maybe, and kind of back to the question, maybe ask questions like, hey, why, why don't, you know, what do you think about this whole God thing? You know, and just listen, don't try to convince them. I think that's what we do a lot of times as believers. And we mean well, but we try to convince people like, you know, you should be saved and here's why you should be saved. And we have someone that they've kind of dug in. The more you try to push, the more they're going to try to argue their point. And so we really have to trust the Holy Spirit uh, to speak to them. And that's why we pray. And then we'd be light and we'd be life and we'd be love to them. And we just keep inviting them and letting them belong and, 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 and truly not letting them belong, but belo- you know, say, Hey, you belong here. We accept you. If you never choose Jesus, we accept you. If you never follow Jesus, we accept you. If, if you never believe there's a God, you are welcome to hang out here. Um, and I think that's really, really the way we approach that. Um, so is non-denominational a religion? Can be. Can be. Um, I don't, it's, there's not actually a denomination called non-denominational, but to me, that's a genre of church. That's why we're not... A, by the way, if you ask me, are we a non-denominational church, my answer is no. If you ask me, are we an interdenominational church, my answer is no. When people ask me, what kind of church is Pathway? I say, we are a spirit-empowered evangelical church. And the reason I say that, because it doesn't make sense, and then we get to be our own thing and not stereotyped by some crazy dancing on the ceiling, swinging from a chandelier, barking like a dog, clucking like a chicken kind of movement, right? And so, anyway, so, um, but no, non-denominational is not actually a religion. By the way, um, denominations aren't a religion. You know, really, uh, denominations, they're just um, really, they were instituted by men as government structures to try to expand the kingdom of God. Um, And there's nothing wrong with denominations, but denominations in themselves are not a religion. In fact, here's my whole thing. Christianity is not a religion. It's not supposed to be. Religion is all about man's attempt to get to or please a deity, and Christianity is about a God who became a man to get to his people. It was about his pursuit of us, not our pursuit of him. And so it's not even a religion. In fact, it's a kingdom. Jesus didn't come preaching the religion of God. He came preaching the kingdom of God. He said, not the religion of God is at hand, so everybody should act better. But he said, the kingdom of God is present, and you can't really see it, and you can't really engage with it because you're dead. But I've come to give you life and to give you abundant life. How is that? Because by giving you life, I give you the access and the ability to access the kingdom of God that is now present on the earth. So this was all about a king and a kingdom, not about a religion and a priest necessarily. He is a high priest. He has a tone, but he's a king priest right? Does that make sense? He's a priest who's a king, but he primarily is a king and he's going to be a king for all eternity. And so to be a good king, he came and was a priest. Does that make sense? But this is about a kingdom, not about a religion. So denomination is, is not a religion. Um, is masturbation a sin? I think I answered this really clearly in, um, one of the messages you asked for it. Um, you know, my question would be, why are you masturbating? You know, if it's an escape, it's about medicating pain. Are you fantasizing? Those are all good questions um, to ask if, if that's what's going on. Because if you're fantasizing, then yeah, it's sin. If you're using it as an escape or a medication, then you're trying to move away from reality. And you need to really look at what's going on there. Um, I ask, is that okay to do to stay pure? Do you need to do that to stay pure? And, and really, that probably is exciting desires and things that are going to work against you staying pure. 
So um, those are thoughts. But I think I answer it better in one of the sermons or message I did, and you asked for it probably on, oh, and sex, when I talked about sex. So you could go and, and listen to that. I keep going back to the same person who hurts me each time. How can I let go and just focus on God and myself? Um, you need to admit you're codependent. And your sense of self is tied to that person, and that's why you keep going back. So you've probably got soul ties if there's been sexual activity, or if there's not been sexual activity, there's something that carries you back, and it's brokenness inside of you. And then you're being hurt because of the brokenness inside of them. But you can't fix the brokenness inside of them. You have to fix the brokenness inside of you. So you got to deal with, why do I keep going back? Am I scared to be alone? Am I tied, knit to this person because of a sexual act or something like that, that sex is designed to knit our souls? So if I've had sex with them or something like that, I'm probably knit to them, so I'm naturally going to be drawn back to them. Uh, But they're obviously not a safe person, maybe toxic. So you need to deal with the brokenness inside of you. And the first thing you need to do is knowledge, okay, there's something broken inside of me that keeps taking me back. And that'd be a great thing to involve a life group in to be honest, and they're not going to condemn you or kick you out because they've all dealt with the same stuff too. And so um, talk to your life group leader and say, hey, I need some accountability around my life because I keep going back to the same person um, and they keep hurting me and it's brokenness inside of me and I need to deal with the brokenness inside of me and I need to deal with what I'm trying to get out of this relationship that I feel like I don't have in and of myself. And so, um, so some accountability and and then, you know, the tough worker looking inside and saying, hey, why am I so broken that I keep going back to somebody that's going to hurt me? And I know they're going to hurt me, but I'm going to go right back, um, right? And so I need to start figuring out what's wrong with me and where my brokenness, brokenness is. And understand that I can do this as long as I want to, but I'm never going to be okay and they're never going to be okay. We're just going to continue the same pattern of I go back, they hurt me. I go back, they hurt me. I go back, they hurt me. Right, And I can't fix them, so I need to fix me. And so the first thing I need to do is make it where I can't go back. Right, And so there's a good place for accountability. Talk to my friends, guy friends, girlfriends, whatever the case may be, and say, hey, here's what's going on. Keep going back. Deal with soul ties if there's been sexual activity. Um, and then, um, then do the hard work of looking inside and seeing what's going on with me and where I'm broken and why I can't be alone. Uh, and and why I don't you know don't have a true sense of self even with myself. I'm apparently needing something from them for me to feel okay. That's codependency, right? So look at that. And you could also see a counselor, pastor, or somebody like that. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Will God still honor a relationship that started off in sin, but now we are putting Him first? Um, I think God's gracious. I think God redeems. And by putting him first, I don't know. I mean, if, I'm going to make an assumption based on the question because I don't have the information. Um, so we have a relationship that started off in sin. So I'm going to say that was adultery, fornication. I'm going to assume there was something unhealthy about the way that started. The question is, did we surrender? Did we change? Did we stop anything? Did we start anything? Have we made any steps to be responsible for our sin, to repent for it, to ask God to forgive us, and to make sure we're not going to continue in that sin? In other words, so if it started out in some type of immorality, but we are continuing in immorality, I don't think you can continue in anything contrary to, to the law of God and ask God to bless it. I think that would be um, hypocritical and, and kind of in a way heresy. It's kind of a crazy idea. Now, if you're saying, hey, we started out immorally, but now we've come to a place, we've gotten married and all that, then you could go back to my marriage on divorce or my message on divorce and remarriage and find out that I think if you truly accept responsibility and, and responsibility not to cleanse our sin, but responsibility, hey, I have sinned. Does that make sense? There's a difference. I can't actually cleanse my sin, but I can be responsible for what I've done. 
And it's responsibility that drives me towards repentance, right? And so then repentance is saying, hey, I'm going to do something different. I, you know, I'm going to let God cleanse me. I'm going to ask God to forgive me. And I'm going to do something different. So if it started out in immorality, um, I'm sorry. I hate that. I hate that for y'all. And, and I know that the enemy will be able to use that against you. But if you take responsibility and you ask God to forgive you and you truly live righteously, the grace of God, according to Titus, teaches us to live righteously, right? And so the whole idea of grace is not that it covers us so we can do whatever. The whole idea of grace is it frees us to live unto God righteously where our performance doesn't change our relationship and we don't keep going around in the same circles over and over again. But grace doesn't free us from a moral responsibility to follow God and live uprightly before him and to try to walk in truth and righteousness, right? And so here's this whole fruit of the spirit thing and all of that. And so and so I think that's the place. If we come to this place, God, we really messed up. We, we started this the wrong way, but we have now come into agreement. And so if we're not married, we're going to abstain from this. Or if there's damage, we're going to deal with it. Uh, we're going to repent. And now we're going to make steps to walk righteously. Then, yeah, I think God's gracious and, and can bless that. So um, <clears throat> what are the beliefs at Pathway Church? Well, we have a lot. <laughs> so uh, once saved, always saved, and baptism. Um, yeah, the once saved, always saved is, it's been around forever. And, you know, this group of people say, well, those people believe this. And this group of people say, we believe this. Um, you know, I, I believe, I believe there is security in the grace of God. If there is faith in the heart of man, I think that's the easiest way. So I don't think that I'm saved by works. Ephesians two, very clearly we're saved by grace through faith. So if, my, if I can't be saved by works, I can't lose my salvation because of works. Salvation. But, now listen to me, that doesn't mean I'm not saved for works. It just means I'm not saved by works. Because Ephesians 2 goes on, verse 10 says, we're his workmanship creating Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So I'm not saved by works, I'm saved for works. And I'm rewarded in, in the life to come based on the works that I did. So you know, if I'm a believer, I get into eternity on Jesus' side, but then I'm judged based on what I did with Jesus. And I'm rewarded based on the works that I did. Now I'm saved based on faith. I'm rewarded based on works, right? It's what the Bible, the Bible teaches. And so do I believe once saved, always saved? No, I think you have salvation as long as you have faith. Because the Bible clearly talks about apostasy and people turning from the faith. And I have a friend myself who was raised a Christian, made a profession of faith. I believe he truly was a Christian, and now he claims to be an atheist. So do I think he's saved? No. I, there's, there's, I think there's security and salvation as long as there's faith in the heart. Does that make sense? And I think, so God is always a respecter of our decisions and our choices. And if we want to trust on him and have faith, and, and I said this the last service, and I'll say it again in this one, I think there's a lot of people that think they're saved that aren't. Because salvation is not knowing there is a God. The demons know there is a God and tremble, the Bible says, but they're not saved. So it's not about knowing there is a God. It's about trusting on him, right? It's about surrendering to him. It's about letting him change me. It's about living my life toward him and for him. I'm not, I'm not legalistic about it. I'm not living for acceptance and that, that's works, right? I'm not working for his acceptance, but I'm living from his acceptance under righteousness, producing the fruit of righteousness, trying to do my best 
with, with my heart towards God, I'm still going to mess up, still going to fail, still going to make mistakes. And that's why grace is important because when I mess up, it doesn't change my relationship with God. But if I can't be saved by my behavior, I can't be damned by my behavior. It's really all about my faith and trust in him. And as long as I have faith and trust in him, I have security and salvation until the day that I deny him. And once I say, I don't have faith and trust in you, I can certainly make that decision. We call that apostasy. We call that turning away from the faith. And you can choose to do that. But there's no once saved, always saved. There's no, hey, I said a prayer and for the rest of my life, everything's going to be okay. No, it's about, do you have faith today for salvation? Are you believing in God today? Not, not did you sign a card way back then? That's believing that there is a God. I'm talking about, are you believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that make sense? But if I'm believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and I screw up today, it didn't change my salvation at all. Does that make sense? So you got to understand the balance here of how this works. So could someone have an addiction and, and, and be saved? Absolutely, because it's about faith in God, not about the struggle they're dealing with, right? And so this is, you know, is there eternal? I think there is security in Christ as long as there's faith in the heart of man, right? Because salvation is by faith because of his grace. It's a gift of God. And, and gifts aren't earned and gifts aren't taken back, but you can sure give it back. You know, with God, you, with God, you can't earn anything, but you can have everything. And the moment you try to earn it, you can't have it. And when you stop earning it, you can have it because everything with God comes by grace, right? But faith is the currency that moves his grace into my account right? Faith is how I make the withdrawal. And so is there security in Christ? I think there's security in God as long as there's faith in the heart of man. But to say, I can say, you know, once saved, always saved, it's kind of been that idea. Well, once I get saved, I can never lose my salvation. Well, I understand you can, you can't lose it, but you can give it back. Right? I mean, does that make sense? Is that clear? So if not clear, you can ask another question. Okay, here's a good one, probably a teenager. How do I know what God is calling me to do after high school? I think finding God's purpose and calling is, oh, it's a big thing for me. When we started this church, that's still kind of the tagline, connecting people to purpose, because I think everybody has one. I think God is a creator, and, and as far as I know, no one's ever created anything that didn't have a purpose. Isn't that true? So if he's a creator and he created you and formed you in your mother's womb, you have a purpose. Now the question is, how do I find that purpose? Well, I think... A couple of things you can do. We do a thing called First Step where we help you understand, I think, design. First of all, how am I designed, right? Like if you hate people, you're probably not called to, to be in a social worker, right? <laughs> and, I, and I use hate liberally. But if you don't like people, right, you, maybe God's called you to be an accountant. You know, I don't know. But anyways, and I'm not saying accountants don't like people, but you understand what I'm saying. They love numbers. <laughs> anyways, don't write me that email. We have great, great accountants and CPAs, et cetera, that go to this church. We have a fantastic one on our staff. She's amazing. She loves people and she loves the gospel. So that's not what I'm saying. All right. I'm just saying there are professions where you work with people and there are professions where you don't work with people as much. So anyways, my point is <laughs> back to how am I designed? What's my personality? What are my spiritual gifts? I would take a spiritual gifts assessment, personality. By the way, in first step, we do all this for you. So we talk about your passion. We talk about your uh, spiritual gifts. We talk about your personality. We kind of walk through all of that. Then I always like to ask these two questions. Like if money, like there's, there's a couple, th I'll give you three questions. Number one, what ticks me off? Right? Because, and, and then the other one, what makes me tick? And the tension of those two questions kind of gives you like, right? Like if it ticks me off that kids are being exploited, then I should be in human trafficking 
or adoption or something like I should be I should be sticking up for children if that ticks me off. It also may be the thing that makes me tick. Like if nothing else makes me more happy, that's where I that's where I should land and live, right? Though that's a good way to discern there's a calling, there's a grace on my on my life for this type of thing, right? If I'm a great listener, maybe a counseling profession or even pastoral care or something like that because I'm, I just have this gift that I can sit and listen. See, I'm not a great listener. I have to work at it. It works me to death to listen because five minutes into it, I know what you need to do different. <laughs> if you just listen to me, we could end this appointment. And so that's why I'm not a good counselor, right? It's not, I'm, I'm too... Anyway, so... Um, so what ticks me off? What makes me tick? And the last thing is, if, if money weren't an object and I could do anything in the world, and it's not go live in Hawaii, but if I could do anything in the world, what would I do? Like anything in the world to help or to minister. Like money wasn't an object at all. I didn't have to have a paycheck. Someone's just going to magically put money in my account, however you may see that. But what would I want to do with my life? Who would I want to help? Where would I want to go? What would that look like? I think those are great questions to ask when it comes to trying to find my purpose. Like, what do I enjoy? What am I good at? Um, What grace is there on my life? What ticks me off? What makes me tick? I think those are great questions. And by the way, if you're a teenager and you're asking that, you're probably ahead of the game. Because most people ask that after four years of college and, you know, $200,000. And so... What's your thoughts on speaking in tongues? I won't go into that in great detail because I did a whole series called Friend Request and I did a whole Sunday, a whole message about 45, 50 minutes on tongues. Um, I can tell you, I speak in tongues and I wouldn't want to try to pastor you without the gift of being able to communicate spirit to spirit with God. I'm not ashamed of that. You're never going to hear me speak in tongues in a public forum because I think the Bible says, hey, when there are people that may not understand or there are people that may not believe that or there are people who may not know Jesus, you shouldn't do that publicly. I think there's a private grace of tongues and I think there's a public gift of tongues and those are not the same. And I have about a 45 or 50 minute message. It's on the app, it's on the webpage. Go back to that. Um, but I think there is a prayer language, and, and I'm so grateful that I was raised to believe that. And, and hey, the Bible says when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays um, through us with sounds that we don't recognize. And I can tell you as a pastor, as a parent, as a husband, there have been a ton of times I didn't know how to pray. And I needed a prayer partner who could absolutely pray the will of God with me. And in those moments, I was so thankful to have the grace of tongues, the prayer language of God, to communicate spirit to spirit in perfection, I believe. I think tongues is the perfect language. You don't believe me? Try to cuss in tongues. (laughs) You can cuss in every other language, including sign language, and I think we all know that. (laughs) And so... But try to cuss in tongues. You can't. Perfect language. So, um, but anyways, I teach all on that. And if you're sitting here like, oh my God, Ethel, get your purse. One of those churches. We don't, we don't force that on people. We don't, there's, we've never had any weirdness with that at all. And I don't think it's supposed to be weird. I don't think the Holy Spirit's weird. And I think we kind of got this idea that God's the mean one, Jesus is nice one, the Holy Spirit's like Cousin, Ellie, Cousin Eddie rolling up his RV, you know, um, Christmas vacation. And I, he's not the weird one. Um, he's God. You know, and the Bible talks about tongues, and I think it's in the Bible. Nobody made it up. It's very clear, and it's in the Bible. And I would encourage you to go back to Friend Friend Request is the series. It was earlier this year, Friend Request. I did a a message called um, something like He Speaks in Tongues or, or something like that. And so, so if you go listen to that message, I'm, I'm going to take all those scriptures and outline it just to, to help you with that. All right. Um, <clears throat> how do I worship a God who lets so many horrible things happen to innocent people? Uh, great question, actually. And um, 
I think, unfortunately, you've assumed the wrong thing in the question, and that's where your problem is. Because your assumption is that God is letting evil happen. And you've assumed that because you know that God's all-powerful. And because God's all-powerful, then he should be powerful and kind and stop. So the assumption is you have an all-powerful God who's choosing not to act, which is allowing evil to happen. And the thing you haven't factored in there is what about free will? Because an all-powerful God is all-powerful and gracious and kind and wonderful and loving, but he will not control creation. Right? So it's, a lot of agnostics and atheists ask a similar question, and they'll say, I can't believe in a God who um, would allow bad things to happen. And what I would step back and say is, okay, if there's bad things, would you say there's good things? Yes. All right, so you can't have good things and bad things without a moral law, correct? There's got to be a moral law. Would you agree? Yes. Do you believe people have to learn morality or people just know morality? Well, most of the time people have to learn morality. Now we've assumed that from the beginning of time there had to be a moral law giver. So what was your question again? Because the assumption was there wasn't a God because there was evil. But if there's evil, there's good. If there's good and evil, there's a moral law. If there's a moral law, there's a moral law giver. And we as humans can't even agree on morality, so we can't be the moral law giver. So where did morality and moral law come from? There had to be one moral agent. So your question has backed you into a corner where there's God. Obviously, you believe in God, but you're saying, how do I worship him when bad stuff happens? And what I would say is, For bad stuff not to happen, then God would have to do away with human will. And since God cannot and will not do away from the beginning of time, he created Adam and Eve. And let's look at the world God created for just a minute. So God created a world where there's no sickness, no disease, no sin, no suffering, no pain, no depression, right? And God created that world. And we see that in the garden for just a glimmer of time. But you know why that world didn't last? Because God told Adam and Eve, you can eat, you can do what you want to do. Right? And the moment they made a decision to move against God, it opened death, opened this door of death into creation. And so now we're dealing, the problem Jesus came to solve, by the way, was not behavior, it was life and death. He said, I came not that you'd act better, but I came that you would be, that I, I came that you would have life. So we think Jesus came as the school teacher with the ruler to say, no, I'm going to teach you to act better. That's not at all what Jesus came to do. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it abundantly because death was the problem. How did death get into the world? Adam and Eve. They chose. The other thing we assume is that God is sovereign. Therefore, God is in control of everything. And there is a difference between sovereignty and control. Is a king a sovereign ruler? Yes, but is there crime? Like, is the Queen of England the sovereign ruler of England? Yes. But do they have crime all the time? Yes. Why? She's sovereign. There's a difference between sovereign and control. And God's not a puppet master. And if we were a puppet master, he'd be pulling certain strings and not pulling other strings, and then we'd have to question, is he really good? Because if he's really good, can he control people? Is that really good? Is that what we want? Well, we want him to control the bad. So we want him to eliminate some of our free choice, but not all of our free choice. So how do I worship a God when there's suffering in the world? I realize that God's never been pro-suffering. He didn't create any suffering. He doesn't desire suffering. And since suffering entered the world, he has been working a plan to end all suffering. 
because the other, the other picture of this is the other bookend of after Jesus comes and after sin is finally dealt with in finality and those who have rebelled against God is dealt with in finality, there's a new heaven and a new earth that is like a utopia where there is no pain. The Bible says there are no tears. There's no suffering. So we have to look at when God is, what God is after, the garden. What God is now working for, new heaven and new earth, no tears, no pain, no suffering. And so God is not pro-suffering. He is not for suffering. I will not create, let me back up that. There is a place for, there's a difference between suffering for the sake of the gospel and just suffering with pain and brokenness in the earth. You understand that? So there's, there's this idea that we suffer for the gospel and that may happen. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you, right? That's a different kind of suffering. Persecution, those types, that's a different kind of suffering. But suffering our, our pain as it, as it comes from human actions and wills and desires, God cannot control people. He won't. He could. Don't get me wrong. God could come down and shock us all and we would be very much in control of this powerful deity. But he won't because love exists only in choice. We have to choose him, not be manipulated into it. And by the way, the problem we have with earth is that God put man in control. Because the best God can do, the best God can do, the garden, like running around naked, eating fruit salad, petting cheetahs, right? <laughs> new heavens and new earth. There's no pain, no suffering, no tears. That's the best God can do. What happened to earth? He said, Adam, I want you to take dominion. I want you to be in control. And Adam took the keys and left them laying on the counter, you know, and didn't take care of the car, you know, that kind of thing. And Satan took the keys. And then Satan, once he had the keys... And then you see what happens. And now Jesus came. By the way, Jesus came and gave us the keys. And now we're, we're in control again. So maybe the earth we have today and all the problems we have is the best we've done. Not the best he's done. Does that make sense? And so uh, for me, it's, it's, <clears throat> it is hard to worship at all when there's pain. But I worship God because he's not the author of pain. Pain is a byproduct of choice. And so suffering doesn't change who God is. God is still working a plan for redemption. He's still working a plan for healing. He's still working a plan for wholeness. And the problem is we read the Bible. I think I said this in one of the other stories. We read the Bible and religion has taught us to read the Bible in the context of this is how we get to heaven. And that's not even what it's about. The Bible is about the restoration of creation. It is true to be absent from our body today would be to be present with the Lord. But how does this thing culminate? A new Jerusalem came coming down to earth, new heavens, new earth, and we will rule and reign with Jesus forever. Where? On the earth. And so this is about the restoration. Creation is groaning for, and for, for the revealing of the sons of God. All, the whole thing is about the creation of God being restored the way it's supposed to be and our, our stories being told the right way. In fact, this is not about religion at all. This is about the kingdom, right? And this is about the restoration of God's kingdom with man on the earth. And so that's what God's working towards. And yes, right now it's hard because we see all this suffering and the enemy's really good saying, well, you know, if God's really God, he'd do something about it. But we have to understand that, that there's a way that God works and a way that God will not work. And God's given us the ability today. You can choose him or not choose him. That's your choice. You can choose to do something bad. You can do, choose to do something good. And God's not going to take control of you because it would work against his nature, not his ability. And we need to understand there's a difference between the power of God and the nature of God. The power of God comes out of the nature of God. So in a way, the power of God is almost secondary to who God is. 
right? And God is not a controller. He's not a puppet master. He's going to let people pick until Jesus returns, right? So how do I worship a God when there's suffering? Well, I worship a God in the midst of suffering. Even though suffering's hard, it's hard to watch. It can be very painful. It can be hurtful, and I validate that and affirm that. I understand that. But at the same time, I understand that God doesn't create suffering. He doesn't cause suffering. And God is working to end all suffering. But he's working through us, and we get to pick. So that's how I'd answer that. Does that make sense? Why don't you stand with me? We'll call that. Well, that's where we'll crash the plane this week.